were joking about it. This last evening, they were saying, no snow today. Hallelujah, no snow. I looked at my weather app, no snow. This morning, I woke up and I checked it, no snow. A little bit later, I looked, and there was one little bleep of a possible, just a little possible little thing for a 10-minute snow, you know, thing. Just then a little bit later, I looked out, and I couldn't even see. There was, this, there was this squall out here. It was so white, incredible. And then they started calling for snow the rest of the day. <clears throat> That's because it's Wednesday. Something about it, I don't know. We have had so many Wednesday snowstorms. But the good news is it's warmer outside. Praise the Lord. Don't worry about all that uh, all that sub-zero freezing. We are in Isaiah 25. And Lord willing, tonight we're going to cover chapters 25 and 26, and so I will go fast this evening. Last week, we spent some time looking at the tribulation, and uh, I was meditating upon that concept before this afternoon's class, and I was just imagining the tribulation is the unleashing of God's wrath, uh, specifically on his own people, for their consistent idolatry. They said no to God continually, over and over again, no God, no God, no God. And finally God says, listen, if you're going to continue this, I'm going to draw a line. I will not be your God. Well, you know the story. They, they continued in their idolatry, and God drew the line. And um, we read in Daniel of the, the uh, 70 weeks, well, 69 weeks were purposed for them with the last week being that week of the tribulation, the seven years tribulation time of God's wrath, the wrath of the Lamb. And um, it's going to be a time the likes of which, if God allows us to see it, and if our emotional system has not been altered somehow in our resurrected body, and I don't know, I don't, if it has not been, and as we, as we view that, it'll be impossible for us to view that without being sickened by what we see. I thought about judgment in particular, and I thought about how when, uh, when many, many years ago now, my youngest daughter is what, 35, something like that. So when my children were young and daddy would have to spank them, it was an uncomfortable time for them. <laughs> they didn't appreciate being spanked. But when my first daughter, Emily, when I had to spank her, it hurt my wife far more than it hurt my daughter. My wife grew up in a home where she was very loved, but her dad had no concept of how to properly discipline. And so he disciplined in anger. And, uh, and, and when he did apply discipline, it was rarely in the places it was supposed to be applied to. And so she, she grew up with a very um, distorted view of proper discipline. And so when I told her that we got married, we started working, we had kids, we were going to discipline them. Of course, I was going to discipline the way I was disciplined, which was godly and you know, loving, but very firm household. And, and so I spanked my children, and she cried killed her to have to hear me because her mind goes back to improper discipline. I bring that up because for her watching judgment on our girls, which was done in love, I did it because I love them. 
but there was still pain, it was great pain to her. And when, if, if we are allowed to see the, some of the devastation that's going to occur on the earth, I think that it's going to turn our stomachs. I think it will bother us so much to see wicked people, unsaved people, but they're going to be going through such horrible judgments. And, and I can understand an unenlightened mind, an unsaved mind, questioning a loving God for doing things like this. How could a loving God do things like that? I, I could understand their rationale. But just like going to back when I spanked my children, I did so out of love for them. And God, when he brings judgment down upon the, the wicked there in the tribulation, if God did not do that, if God allowed wickedness to go unpunished, if he did not have that side of his righteousness and holiness, then it would not be equally balanced by his mercy and love. But we have in our Savior, and our God, the complete package, and it's so beautiful. Well, I say all that is a setup to tonight. Last week we looked at the tribulation. Tonight we're going to look at the millennium. This is the, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which begins... Uh, shortly after the tribulation ends, the tribulation, seven years, if the Lord calls us home tonight, then the world is going to be thrown into seven years tribulation. At the end of the seven years, we'll, the Lord's going to come back. We'll come back with him, and he'll establish his rule and reign in the millennium, which means, realistically, the millennium could start roughly seven years from now. Seven years from now. And so what we're looking here is a prophecy, a look to the future events. When God gave this to Isaiah in Isaiah's day, and of course there's no way that Isaiah could have understood all that you and I understand because there's been so much revealed knowledge at this time. And so here we are standing at the poss possibly standing at the brink, the brink of what he prophesied so many years ago. And so let's take a look at it. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse number 1. It says, O Lord, Thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. And here, if you're taking notes, number one, praise to the Lord as he sets up his kingdom. This is the introduction to the chapter. I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, thou hast done wonderful things. Thy counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. I'll give you this much, and then I'll pray, and then we'll jump into it. What you have here is a prophetical look at the people of God in the millennium now. The millennium has been opened up. They are all saved people beginning the millennium. Those, those Jews who begin it, the millennium, have just weathered the tribulation. Now they're looking back, seeing God's deliverance and how he took them through such a horrible, horrible time. They're looking back at the tribulation. They're looking back at the years of, of uh, exile, all that the Jews have endured. They're in the millennium now. Jesus Christ rules and reigns, and they're basically singing a song of praise. Thank you, God. Finally, finally, we are in this stage of peace. You are our king, and we can glorify you Thou art my God, I will exalt thee, I will praise thy name, for thou hast done wonderful things. Verse 1, let's pray. 
Thank you, dear Lord, for your love and your blessing, and thank you for giving us these little sneak peeks of the future. Lord, it's amazing to realize that you wrote this, you gave this through the prophet Isaiah so many years ago. And here tonight, realizing that the, uh, the events in the world are being set up so perfectly for your return, that it could very possibly be, Lord, that you will call us home any day now. Meaning, the world is moments away, possibly, from the tribulation. And if that be the case, then we're roughly seven years away from the beginning of the millennium. And so tonight, as we look at this millennial look back of praise by your people, would you enlighten us? Would you open our eyes and give to us understanding? For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter is a look at the blessings experienced as Christ becomes king after the tribulation. It leads the world through the thousand years of the millennium, and it's written as a praise song to God. Let me read you just a passage out of Revelation chapter 5, beginning of verse 9. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book, to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. The number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We're looking at, in the millennium now, this is a prophetic look, at those standing in the millennium thanking God for the deliverance through the horrible time. Letter A, Babylon will lie in a heap. Verse 2, for thou hast made of the city an heap, of a defensed city, a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall, be, it shall never be built. We're not given a specific name here of a city, but as the tribulation comes to an end, Babylon, the city, will be destroyed. Other cities will likewise follow its fate from the massive earthquake that we know is predicted, leaving them in heaps or in ruins. Babylon drew Gentiles from around the world to its luxurious accommodations, here called a palace. Its destruction would send shock waves throughout the world, causing a great cry to ring out. Revelation 18, 10, and 11, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. And then once destroyed, Babylon will not be rebuilt. And that's prophesied in Revelation 18, 21. Letter B, God will be glorified by all during the millennium. Verse 3, Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. Well, once again, Isaiah has not specified who these peoples are. The strong people can possibly be a reference to God's people entering the millennium, collectively glorifying the Lord, while those that oppressed God's people, especially during the tribulation, Gentiles gathered in the city, considered the terrible nations, will all fear the Lord. A, an alternative position would be, the strong people could be those nations that greatly oppressed God's people. 
and the city of the terrible nations may be a reference to those under the jurisdiction of Rome. Their reign of terror will likely cease as a result of the great earthquake, causing the nations to fear the Lord. Revelation 18, 13, or 11, 13, And the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men seven thousand, and the remnant were affrighted and gave glory to the God of heaven. Letter C. God's people paused to glorify their God. Verse 4. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. God's people here reflect in the goodness of God to them. They had been poor and needy. Remember, they're standing in the millennium, looking back at what they've come through, and they're thanking God. And they feel like they have been poor and needy as they had been taken captive and stripped of their wealth. They had been carried away to Babylon earlier before the tribulation and greatly oppressed during the tribulation. As they entered the peace and security of the millennium, they considered how God had taken them through their trials. God had been a refuge from the storm and a shadow from the heat. There had been times they had suffered invasions of terrible ones who had invaded as a storm against the wall. Here, I think what he's talking about is a possible violent storm that beats against the wall so hard it causes the wall to actually fall in. In Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The word trouble means, I love this, he's a very present help in trouble. Here's the definition. Adversity, affliction, anguish, distress, tribulation, and trouble. A very present help in all those things we go through. Letter D. Israel's oppressors will be humbled. Verse 5, Thou shalt bring down the voice or the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place. Even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. God's judgment upon the strangers, he mentions here, the oppressors of God's people will quiet them. It'll be like when the clouds move in, blocking the hot rays of the sun. The rains begin drenches everything. As a limb, a limb of a tree, bends down by the added weight of the rain and the steady downpour, so those oppressors will be also humbled. Isaiah 13, 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Letter E, the Lord will throw a lavish banquet Verse 6, And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, <laughs> a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of morrow, of wines on the lees well-defined, or well-refined. Well I had not a clue. Not a clue what lees were, wines on the lees. This is out of my storehouse. So I, uh, I did some research. The Lord will lavishly bless Israel in the millennium, along with those who were good to Israel, described here as an extravagant feast. They will celebrate the Lord's reign at that time. Well, first of all, the little phrase, a feast of fat things, simply suggests rich delicacies. Imagine all those things you cannot eat on a diet. 
That's what we're talking about here. Rich, rich delicacy. A feast of wines on the lees describes wine that has been left to properly ferment until it has the proper color and taste. The lees represent the, the settling, that which settles in the wine to the bottom, and it comes to the bottom, just this stays there. What I'm told is those dregs there on the bottom cause the fermentation to go at the, at the proper rate. If, for some reason, that bottle with the sediment falling to the bottom, if it's shook up, it destroys that cycle of fermentation. And what happens is that wine does not turn into the, the mature wine. Instead, it goes through a cycle until it becomes vinegar. So it, it becomes, as far as, the, as far as the wine, it becomes worthless. So here, what's, what's being described is this feast of everything as opulent and as, as perfect and as, as wonderful as it can be. In Jeremiah 48, 11, Moab hath been at ease from his youth and has settled, notice, notice the analogy, on his lees, and hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remaineth in him, and his scent is not changed. I know nothing about wine. I don't care to know anything about wine, but I did learn something. There's a, there's a scent, a smell they go for in wine, and there's a color they go for. Notice this analogy here. He hath settled on his lees, hath not been emptied, neither hath he gone to captivity. Therefore, his taste remaineth in him, and his scent is not changed. Because Moab, pictured as a bottle, was not emptied into another bottle. It stayed there. It was allowed to ferment properly. It didn't lose its taste. It maintained his mature taste, what he's describing here, which would not have understood without the understanding of the fermentation of the wine. Letter F. Spiritual darkness will be destroyed. Verse 7. And he will destroy in this mountain before the face of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. Now, this is interesting. Spiritual darkness will be destroyed. And we talked about this many weeks ago. When God, because of the hard heart of Israel, God put a blanket of darkness on them over the nation. He put a darkness so they could not see the truth. But what I stress then, I'm going to remind you now, is this was a corporate blanket, a corporate blanket of blindness. It is a national blindness. That does not mean that an individual under that blindness cannot respond to God because we know they did. There are many instances of God's people during the time of the blanket of darkness calling out to God and developing a close relationship with God. So you've got to understand, this darkness was a corporate, a national blanket, not an individual one. Individuals could still respond to God if they chose to. In the beginning of the Lord's reign, he will remove this veil of spiritual darkness or blindness that had covered the nation of Israel for so many generations. So as the millennium is established, Jesus is establishing his reign, one of the first things he's going to do is remove the veil. So the nation 
the living nation at that time, all saved Jews, all Israel will be saved. He'll remove that blindness that has been on for so many centuries. The general darkness spiritually in the hearts of the Gentile nations will be wiped away as well. The millennium will begin with spiritual darkness being completely wiped away. Hallelujah. This refers back to Isaiah 6, 9, and 10. And he said, Go tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy. Shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. They can't do it with this blanket of blindness nationally. But you can do it individually. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 3.14, this is Paul's day. So in Paul's day, he describes this national blanket of blindness. He said, But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. He's talking about a time where, where an individual can come to Jesus. Paul did. So the veil was still there in Paul's day, but Paul had a, had a, had a personal relationship with Christ. Coming to Christ, an individual can have that veil taken away. Also, in Christ, in the millennium, he said, that veil will be taken away. Letter G, the Lord was victorious over death. Verse 8, he will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off their faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. Well, working backwards, this is a big deal. Whatever this means, it's a big deal. Why? Because the Lord hath spoken it. It came from God. God said it. Jesus broke the bonds of death when he resurrected from the, from the grave. He made provision for all who would come to him by faith and get saved to put on immortality as well. Though believers may die physically, their soul will live on for eternity. So we can say with Paul, O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? 1 Corinthians 15, 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The believer throughout eternity will be free from those things that caused him grief. Death, sin, sickness. The Lord will take our tears away by removing those reasons to weep. The Lord has given us his word on this. We read it in Revelation 21.4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. But I can't tell you for sure exactly when this is. I have gone back and forth on it, and I don't know exactly when God's going to wipe away all the tears. My personal belief is that we will have access to view at least certain times of the great white throne judgment. I believe we will have, and I can't prove it, but I believe we'll have the opportunity to see at least those people that we had any association with will be able to watch as they are condemned to an eternity in hell. Now, I'm under the impression that there will be tears at that time. We will weep as we recognize people that we could have and should have witnessed to, but we failed to, and they're condemned to an eternity in hell.
sometime thereafter, and I don't know when, sometime thereafter, God is going to wipe away our tears. All I can assume is he's going to wipe away that memory. So for eternity, we're not brokenhearted over that thought. That's all I can think of. Letter H. Israel will testify of the Lord's greatness. Again, we're talking about a time in the future, in the millennium, Israel looking back and thanking God for his deliverance. Verse 9, And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God, we have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him, we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. In the reign of Christ, God's people will rejoice that God was their God. Israel had waited for so long, but finally they had been redeemed. The world had mocked them for believing in God. But now, to the world, they declare, This is the Lord, we have waited for Him. They will testify to His goodness and salvation. Letter I, the Lord will protect His own and destroy His enemies. Verse 10, For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest, and Moab shall be trodden down under Him even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. The Lord will outstretch his hand of protection over his people in that day. The enemies of God and his people, represented in Moab, will be destroyed by the Lord. Used as an analogy, God will defeat his enemies in the most complete and disgraceful means possible, causing them to kneel before him as would a defeated enemy before its conqueror. Jeremiah 16:4, they shall die of grievous deaths. They shall not be lamented, neither shall they be buried, but they shall be as dung upon the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and the carcasses shall be meat for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Letter J, God will humble and destroy his enemies. Verse 11, he shall spread forth his hands in the midst of them. Notice how. As he that swimmeth spreadeth forth his hands to swim, and he shall bring down their pride together with the spoils of their hands. I remember as a young child taking swimming lessons, and the very various uh, uh, strokes they taught us, from the breaststroke to the crawl, all sorts of different kinds. I don't know exactly what stroke we're talking about with God here. As a swimmer swimmeth. So the, the swimmer puts his hands out, and he, he propels himself by pulling against the tension of the water. I, in some way, it's describing God as destroying his enemies, as a swimmer would swim, outstretch his arms. His effortless movements will humble them and will pry their hands from their riches, called the spoils of their hands. Isaiah 2.11, the, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Letter K, the Lord will destroy the walls of his enemies. Verse 12, the fortress of the high fort of thy walls shall be brought down, or shall he bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, even to the dust. The formidable walls securing the cities of the Gentiles, notably around the cities in Moab, will be battered and destroyed, crushed to powder, by the powerful hand of the Lord. My mind goes back to Jericho's walls. Remember how Jericho had those thick walls? There were apartment dwellings in the middle of the walls. They were so thick. And yet after seven days and seven times around that day, God destroyed those walls. They came tumbling down. 
Well, God is going to do it again here in these days. In Isaiah 13, verse 19 and 20, And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees' excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it dwell in it from generation to generation. Neither shall the Arabian pitch tent there, neither shall the shepherd make their fold there. All right, that's chapter 12, or chapter 25. We're ready to jump into chapter 26. And chapter 26, I will introduce this way. Look at the first verse. In that day shall this song be sung. Chapter 26 is a song. I didn't make that up. God tells us right there. This is a song. It is the people of God in the millennium joyfully singing a praise song to God. So keep that in mind because it dances back and forth between the millennium and the tribulation. But what they're doing is they're singing the song looking back to what they came through in the tribulation. So in verse number one, in that day, I'm sorry, number two is Israel's song of deliverance. Israel's song of deliverance. Verse number one, in that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. So what will be their wall in the city? What will be their bulwark in the city, those protections? It will be his salvation. It's an analogy, a picture. After Jesus takes his rightful place as king, redeemed Israel will sing this song of praise to his glory. They'll rejoice in the restored city, Jerusalem. The Lord will have delivered them from their foes as he had been their salvation. They could now rest in his care, trusting in his salvation to protect them as he would walls and bulwarks. With that in mind, listen carefully to this verse, Isaiah 60, verse 18. Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation, <laughs> and thy gates praise. So they'll be protected by God's salvation, and they'll come through the gate of praise. Letter A. An open invitation to righteous Gentiles. Verse 2. Open ye the gates, that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. Since at that time... God's people will already be inhabiting Jerusalem. This invitation must be to those nations submissive to Christ and choosing to follow His leadership. Psalm 118, verse 20, This gate of the Lord, into which the righteous shall enter. Revelation 21, 24, And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Gentile nations who in the millennium choose to submit themselves to the rule of Christ, will have access into the city and out. They'll be able to come in and out of the city. Those submissive nations, letter B, God treasures trust. Number one, God gives peace for trust. Verse three, that will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. With the reign of Christ as a backdrop, God promises us peace, perfect peace, when we commit our trust and focus completely on Him. As we release the reins of our lives to the Lord, trusting Him to lead us where He chooses, He rewards us with peace, peace and trusting. Number two, the Lord is worthy of our eternal trust. Verse four, trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. 
The people were admonished to continue their trust in the Lord forever. They would find everlasting strength in he whose name here is Lord Jehovah. God's highest degree of unchanging power and love are expressed in this name. Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Letter C. Israel rejoices over Babylon's defeat. Number one, Isaiah rejoices over the destruction of Babylon. Verse 5, For he bringeth down them that dwell on high, the lofty city. He layeth it low, he layeth it low, even to the ground. He bringeth it even to the dust. The prophet Isaiah is likely replaying the destruction he had witnessed as played out during the tribulation. He remembered in awe how God had destroyed the lofty city, probably Babylon or possibly Rome, which will arise as the political commercial manifestation of Babylon. It will be thoroughly destroyed and brought to dust. <laughs> so it gets confusing. So here is Isaiah way back here, and God is giving him a foresight of what the tribulation is going to be like, and then what it's going to be like for his people standing in the millennium, looking back on the tribulation as he stands all the way back here. It's incredible. That's why it gets confusing sometimes. Um, number two, those who have been afflicted will bring Babylon to its knees. The, verse six, the foot shall tread it down, even the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The people who had endured such affliction for so long, the poor and the needy of Israel, will in that day bring to destruction that great world power, Babylon. In essence, they will walk all over it. Malachi 4.3, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Letter D. Israel finally fulfills its purpose. Number one, God's people will reflect his nature. Verse 7, the way of the just is uprightness. Thou most upright dost weigh the path of the just. Looking to the time of Christ's rule, when the people of God will finally order their lives according to uprightness, Isaiah declares that their lifestyle will reflect that of the Lord upright. The righteous Lord oversees the thoughts and intents of the heart that determine the path of his people. Proverbs 11:5. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Number two, God's people express the desire of their hearts toward the Lord. Verse 8, yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. The phrase, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, seems to refer to the horrific events of the tribulation, thy judgments. Speaking here would be those of God's people who turn by faith to the Lord for salvation during that time. Many, many Jews will come to know Jesus Christ during the tribulation. They had clung to the Lord for comfort and safety during those awful days. They could now, in the millennium, look back and thank Him for the close relationship they shared. Psalm 73, 28. But it is good for me to draw near to God. 
I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Number three, Israel will delight in their God. Verse nine, with my soul have I desired thee in the night. Yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early. For when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. Israel's focus and demeanor will be radically transformed in the day of the Lord's reign. Instead of chafing at his commandments and being drawn away to strange gods, Israel will yearn for a deeper relationship with God. They will go to bed meditating upon his goodness, awake in the morning with great expectation of seeking his face. As Jesus rules the earth with a rod of iron, the people will learn what true righteousness really is. Life under King Jesus will be blessed and peaceful. Psalm 64, 9 and 10, And all men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord, and shall trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. Letter E. The plight of the wicked. Number one, the wicked fail to respond to God's goodness. This is tragic. Verse 10. Here's human nature in verse 10. Let favor be shown to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. This song of the righteous takes a turn to look at the wicked here. Though God offers them kindness, yet will their hearts remain unrighteous. They may, become, they may become compliant on the outside, but their insides will be solidly cemented in defiance. Here's a picture, a mind-blowing picture of the millennium. Briefly, the millennium begins with only saved people because at the second coming of Christ, he will destroy all the unsaved. So only those living at the time will be saved going into the millennium. The millennium begins all saved people. Let's march down the future, a thousand years. A thousand years have transpired. Now we're at the very end of the thousand years. The devil, at the end of the thousand years, is loosed from the bottomless pit. He's loosed for a short time. And he amasses to himself a great army, an enormous army. And they mount an attack against Jesus. Now, who are these people that are following him? These are the great, 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 great grandchildren of those who started the millennium. Well, they were all saved. How can they go from all saved here to this band, this massive group of unsaved, wicked, hearted people at the end that want to destroy Jesus? Because what happens is back here, generation after generation, they become compliant on the outside, but their hearts are not affected. And because their hearts are not affected, by the time the by the time the thousand years rolls around, they have no heart for God whatsoever. The wicked fail to respond to God's goodness. Number two, the wicked will not see judgment coming. Verse 11, Lord, when thy hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they shall see and be ashamed for their envy at the people. Yea, the fire of thine enemies shall devour them. The wicked tend to be oblivious to the Lord's working. As he begins to move, giving clear warning to those who are seeking him, the wicked take no notice. It's not until they suffer his chastening hand that they begin to realize it's God that has moved. 
Looking back, the wicked will begin to understand why judgment fell. But by then it will be too late. Their judgment will already be underway. And this could be a look to the wicked or the tribulation or to those at the end of the millennium. We're not sure which. I'm not sure which. Letter F, Israel finds peace at last. Number one, Israel rejoices in God's peace. Verse 12, Lord, thou wilt ordain peace for us, for thou also hast wrought all our works in us. Israel, in that day of the Lord's reign, will rejoice in his peace. That which was sadly absent during their long years of captivity because of their sin. As they meditated upon God's goodness, they remembered all his mighty works, leading them to the time when he ruled as Prince of Peace. Psalm 29:11. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Number two. Israel had been in subjection to the heathen, but not in the millennium. Verse 13. O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. Israel had experienced a long season of allegiance to gods other than Jehovah. Their hearts had been ambivalent at best and totally void of God at worst. They had served the gods of the heathen around them, and God had chastened them with Gentile nations oppressing them. God's people had grown so fond of their foreign gods, often even chastening could not rid them of that heart pollution. In the day of the Lord's reign, however, the only God in their hearts will be Jehovah God, their God. Romans 6, 22, But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. Number three, God's enemies will be so thoroughly destroyed, they will be completely forgotten. Verse 14, They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them, and made all their memory to perish. At the dawn of the millennium, Israel will praise God for destroying all their enemies. Those seven years of tribulation will conclude with the Lamb of God winning such a decisive victory over the wicked that even their memory will be defeated. The enemies of God's people would be dead never to rise again. Proverbs 10.7, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Letter G. Israel will grow up at last. Number one, Israel will return to his homeland to glorify the Lord. Verse 15, Thou hast increased the nation, O Lord, thou hast increased the nation. Thou art glorified, thou hast removed it far unto the ends of the earth. In that day, Jews will have come from all parts of the globe to return to their homeland. Israel will be greatly increased and God will be glorified. The sin of God's people had earlier caused God to scatter them to the four corners of the world. Number two, Israel finally began to understand God's chastening. Verse 16, Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. With a likely look to what they had just endured during the tribulation, Israel just began 
to grasp God's plan of chastisement to bring them back to Him. They had underestimated the hardness of their own hearts. From the victorious side of the millennium, they could now see the love of God in His chastening. <laughs> I chuckled when I, when I thought about this passage. Israel will grow up at last. What is it that God called His people frequently? He called them the children of Israel. I found that interesting. Finally, in the millennium, they've chosen to grow up. Number three, Israel had endured severe pain before entering into the millennium. Verse 17, like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain and crieth out in her pangs, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. And of course, this is talking about a woman in labor. She's going through through these contractions, this horrible pain she's having. He says, we were like that. When? In the tribulation of seven years. We're going through this horrible time of pain to be delivered into the millennium. The image presented compares the suffering they endured during the vicious tribulation, that of a woman in labor. In agony, Israel had called out to God for help and deliverance. Number four, Israel overlooked the birth of their king and experienced instead false labor. Verse 18, this is an interesting verse. We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. During the tribulation, Israel had experienced great pains likened to childbirth. Their contractions were not productive, only bringing empty results. They had not affected the world for God like was their purpose, nor had they subdued their enemies, but had remained under the dominion. Of course, Israel had delivered a man-child many years before in the form of Jesus. They had categorically rejected Him, however, and it continued in their unproductive journey. I read about a condition that some women have, and there have been some women years ago that were diagnosed as being pregnant and began having these contractions. They went to the hospital to deliver, found out there was no baby. It was just a horrible form of gas, and they released all that off, and they were fine. Um, or, or a false labor, expecting a delivery only to have wind is what's being described here which is interesting. Why? Because their Messiah, the one they thought was going to come, never happened because they missed the one that did come, Jesus. Letter H. God blesses Old Testament and tribulation saints. Number one, Old Testament saints will likely be resurrected in Jesus' reign. Verse 19, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Who's writing this? Isaiah, dead men shall live, and my dead body, he says, shall arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall be cast, or the earth shall cast out the dead. Isaiah looked to a time of national resurrection in the future, when they will be whole again. Old Testament saints, including Isaiah himself will be raised to bring praise to their Messiah. 
And this will likely take place at the beginning of the millennium. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 describe this time. Number 2, God seeks to encourage tribulation saints. Verse 20, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. Here's a peek at God's heart during the tribulation for His people. Many Jews will turn to Christ during that awful time. He encourages them to wait for the what he calls a little moment, those seven years, a little moment to be over, that they might enjoy His presence forever. Just hang on. Just hang on. It's just a, a little moment of time, and then for all eternity you'll be in my presence, he describes. And then you can write down, if you're taking notes, Revelation 12, 14 through 16, as follow-up. Letter I. Finally, God's wrath will purge the earth of wickedness. Verse 21, For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. The tribulation will be God's ordained time to release his wrath upon the wicked of the earth for their sin. All the blood shed of innocent victims will be exposed and no longer hidden. The tribulation will put an end to man's day of sin. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and following, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. We will come with the Lord Jesus at His second coming. He will destroy all the wicked at that time, setting up His millennial reign, where He will rule and reign for those thousand years, beginning with saved people. That's the song of the redeemed in the millennium. What a whirlwind. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your love, and thank you for going with us on this journey. Lord, it's, it's so hard for us to comprehend, first of all, that people will be able to endure the tribulation. It's hard to comprehend that they won't all perish. But Lord, I do pray that you will... You, you will use these little pictures of the future to motivate us to share your gospel more effectively. Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for what you've shown us tonight. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.